Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. Today I interview a fellow Kiwi, Tim Allen, CEO of Upco, about heavy-duty electric motorbikes. While the firm is small, they've sold about a thousand units here and in Europe and in the US, it ticks a few interesting categories for me. It meets the needs of customers in a few specific ways through improved reliability and luggage capacity, and then creates new jobs to be done in the form of silent transportation and portable power packs that change the basis of competition in the utility motorbike space. The biggest piece of new news is that we have the Micromobility World Conference coming up, our first all-digital conference coming from the 27th to the 29th of January. We've got some amazing speakers lined up, including Wayne Ting, CEO of Lime, Horace interviewing innovation gurus Gene Munster and Benedict Evans about micromobility and disruption, and some other yet-to-be-announced big names in the world of urban transport, design, investing, and micromobility, which will release in the next few weeks. I am super excited for this. It'll be a chance for us to reconvene, if even digitally, and get access to amazing interactive programming covering this topic we all know and love. The event is free, and we'll also have a VIP tier for those who want to participate in curated discussions that will help facilitate. In wider news, the big announcement is that SoftBank has got into the scooter game, with a $250 million investment in Berlin's tier to bring their valuation to just under a billion dollars. This makes them the second most valuable scooter company after Bird, overtaking Lime. Tia says that they plan to use the money to fund continued rollout across Europe, including of its Tia Energy System, a swappable battery pack for its new generation of scooters. Exciting times. And with that, here's Tim. All right, welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us Timothy Allen. How are you going, Tim? Yeah, really good, Ollie. How are you? Yeah, doing really well, doing really well. Um, it's exciting always when we have a chance to bring a fellow Kiwi onto the podcast um, and, and to talk about it. And obviously, I've been following your story for, for a while, but um, uh, for, for the folks who, who don't have any kind of reference point for Ubco, um, it would be great to, to actually hear kind of the story of where you've come from in the past. Like, how did you end up setting up a, an electric motorbike manufacturer from, uh, from New Zealand and then uh, and, and obviously are now exporting all over the world? But um, yeah, the, the, the kind of the story of how that began and where you've got to uh, today. No worries. Um, well, Ubco probably started out in 2014. Daryl, um, Neil and Anne Clyde both had a lot of experience in the e-bike sector. Um, Daryl sort of brought up on a farm and always sort of had an interest in that, in the, I guess the farm application side of it. And they pulled together a prototype in a pretty short space of time um, for the 2014 field days, which is the biggest agricultural expo in Australasia. It's a pretty huge event, about 130 odd thousand people through the gates in a couple of days. Um, and I was, um, I was running a product development company I founded in 2002 called Locus Research. We were a sponsor of the field days innovations area of the, um, the whole exhibition. And um, I was a, the convener of the grassroots judging committee and took the judges through, saw this product, 
I gave them our award, which is the Locust Research Award, that was 120 hours of our work and Locust is a multidisciplinary um, product development company ranging from sort of brand and marketing through product design, engineering, commercial finance and so um, we typically sort of said to someone, well, look, you know, what, I guess whatever the people weren't strong and we could help them with, so you know, 120 hours of heavy lifting and whatever the topic is that you need heavy lifting in. Mm. And in, in the case of the of Darren Nant, it was marketing. So the brand Upco was born in the second half of 2014. Um, the idea behind the brand was pretty explicit because if you look at all of the other brands, um, they all principally own a colour. You know, Honda's red, Yamaha's blue, uh, KTM's orange, and so on and so forth. So we we sort of looked at this idea of a black and white colour scheme. You had the name, which was the utility bike company. Upco was the sort of, I guess, contraction of that. And toward the end of 2014, started to think more seriously about the business formation. And Ant and I talked in a bit more detail about, you know, my involvement or our locus involvement. So we, you know, I was, we were investing into I guess some of the companies we worked for, principally startups, not not more the large enterprise work that we did, and Upco was one of those. And I, I mean, we, we started tipping a lot more engineering in as well, because obviously, to get the frame and everything up to a certain level, we just needed, you know, we we sort of put a lot more horsepower into it, and the supply chain was really brought to the table. In a, in a kind of real sense by Darren and through the 10 years of prior experience they had up in Asia. So that was a mm. huge, huge plus because obviously, you know, I think if you didn't have the supply chain, it's much more difficult. Um, but having, uh, you know, uh, an actual supply chain where you could actually manufacture it in a rational space of time, um, that was a huge plus. So we put two pre-production prototypes onto the table in 15 at the same event and we were sort of in the next tier up which was like this thing called the accelerator and yep. um, we took a bunch of pre-orders off that um, both motors I think were 500 watt peak rated at that point in time and that was clearly not enough the advantage of the field days is you're getting all this feedback pretty immediately from people and so we had to really put the hammer down that was a pretty big effort to get the vehicle ready for production, which is sort of from June to probably, I think, later in 2015. We took our first private investment in about August of that year. That then drove production in round one. So that's the first generation of the 16 bike. Um, that was yep. a pure off-road bike, so no homologation, no registration, um, one kilowatt peak in each wheel, so two kilowatt in total. Yep. Um, and I think, you know, like that's a pretty important thing for us to have done because you can sit in your shed and wonder what people are going to do with stuff and what are the things that they like and what are they prize and what do they enjoy. And you, I, I think the thing is you're never going to get the proper view. So until someone's actually written a check out for it, bought it, taken it back and used it every day, um, the perspective you've got on that is always it, it's not really ultimately what the customer thinks and so yeah. doing that meant you know you get a lot of feedback and you know we're in a very very high duty environment right very high duty yeah so, so I, was gonna, 
I was going to yeah. say, if we could just pause for a second there. So, can you explain what the Ubco bike is? Because I'll, I'll put a picture of it up when yeah. uh, when I post the the podcast. But just how the bike works, what what's kind of different about it, and then what mm. the kind of rural requirements are for it as a utility bike because i think that's yeah, the part yeah. that differentiates it compared to everything else that i've seen in the micro mobility mm-hmm. space really yeah so obviously it's a utility bike or vehicle we call it um two-wheel drive so no external drivetrain you've got a um, geared hub motor in each hub so you've got two independent wheels two independent controllers a vehicle management system and then obviously all of that sort of links everything together um, so, you know, in the context of how the bike was used originally, it was mostly sold into agricultural um, applications. So what that effectively means is the bike is used every single day of the year. So, you know, you learn this as you go, right? I mean, I think I have worked in product development for a long period of time, but I even underestimated the duty cycle of some of the products and what was required. We've got a lot better at it. Um, and I'd say, you know, if you take a look at where we're at today with the bike, it's rated to do a full discharge every day carrying 150 kilograms for 365 days a year for five years. That's what the frame is rated to. Mm-hmm. Which, when you measure the stress that you're putting on the vehicle, and this is an off-road use case, where the impacts are relatively continuous. It's not like you're riding on a on an asphalt road and you might hit a pothole or a jutter bar occasionally. And it's not recreational. So where you take a motocross bike, the thing is, sure, the impacts can be extreme, but you're doing it once a week, if you're lucky. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I guess the other thing is that someone is depending on this vehicle to do a job every day. If something breaks when you're out having a recreational trail ride, sure, that's a pain. But if something actually breaks and you've got 300 cows that you have to milk, that's, you know, more specific problem (laughs) that you've got to (laughs) deal with. A giant pain (laughs) in the butt. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so, and you know, there's a lot of money tied up every time you get those girls out. So I think the thing is like we, we had to hamster wheel like all hell for a long time to get something to the level that it is now where it actually can survive in the environment. I'm not going to say we got it right. Starting in New Zealand's a farming environment, it's a hell of a good place because it's they're the most brutal users you could possibly find. Um, yep. So, you know, the silver lining for us is what we have to survive is you know, there's no food delivery context, there's no postal delivery context, there's no context we can put the bike into where it's going to exceed the challenges that it faces environmentally, climatically, and, you know, from a general wear and tear perspective. The wear and tear on vehicles in a New Zealand farming environment is is very, very high. I mean, a typical life cycle for a Yamaha AG200 might be two years and then they'll throw it out, literally. It doesn't have a life after that, and right. that's a that's this a is like a farm like a farm motorbike that you just yeah put on. yeah and these yep. are you know like if you took the top brands even these guys can't put something in this environment that lasts longer than that. So you know you've got to basically now within the midst of all of this, there are some very strong constants constants around what people 
and this is the advantage of someone buying a product is that we have early adopters who are willing to put up with imperfection because of very specific things we're giving them. Yes. Yeah, right. Yep. So one of these, and this is again why it's so important to put this out and not sat in a workshop for five years, is that quietness. You know, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So if you go to our YouTube channel, Daryl made a video called The Silent Journey. So if you look at Upcode The Silent Journey or Google that, you'll probably get the video, watch it. It's, it's actually one of the, I remember when I first saw it, I was like, where the hell's the soundtrack? And I was like, oh, right. Because you hear <laughs> that's kind of the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was sort of yeah. a, it was a bit of a retard factor there, and yeah. so um, I had to, you know. So when you listen to it, you can hear the dog running beside the bike. You can hear the birds. You know, it's that is one of the most prized things, and it remains to this day. Now we've obviously kept on working on this, and then we recently did a really big survey. And the things that come through, right, are this this quietness, the lightness and the effortlessness of it. Safety. Versus the heavier, so so in terms of the actual bike itself oh, is lighter and lighter yeah. to operate? Look, dude, I mean, you, you know, if you come off an AG200, which is not uncommon for a guy my size, mm. um, it's a, that's like 150 kilograms of steel, very high COG with a clutch and all the rest of it. It is clunky clunksville so you know you, you once somebody's got off that and then they've jumped on a, one of these and ridden it around for a week and then you go back that's when you realize the you know the you know being imperfect but still having these things that are significant significantly beneficial and the safety mm-hmm versatility and then you start to every year we came back we applied more technology in so when you go into this year you've got a full fleet portal the vehicle is fully connected through its only telematic system it's got an accelerometer a gyro you've got a bound inclinometer in the vehicle that you can use to change dynamically the firmware and change the motor output You, you know like there's a whole lot of things you can start to do that are just not possible in a combustion engine vehicle and that accelerates over time now we we obviously yeah. started out pretty low-key and you're starting out in a pretty low-key country so you know but but the thing is we're learning through super super hard users and the feedback that these guys will give you let's be honest that's pretty direct and they pay yes. the money for it so if you don't hustle and fix something or update something or provide a update kit for something then you know you're not going to be having such a good week so we we worked really hard stayed really close to the customer um you know you're getting again this product used every day so you know you build this very clear understanding and if you go through the fifth generation of the product which has just come out of production now you know you've restructured all of the stuff within the vehicle and i think the thing is the choice of drivetrain is significant because it changes the structure of the vehicle right you put a mid-drive motor in there or a center motor with a chain or a belt drive and all of a sudden we don't have portable power so the bike today you know we go up to 3.1 kilowatts you can remove that pack put a power console on it and basically you've got a 3.1 kilowatt hour power pack 
Right. No, no, and that's can't. used as a functional, like, yeah. to help power tools and stuff when you're out in the field? Well, there's a whole lot of stuff you can do. I mean, if you look at the, the exponential growth in battery-powered tools these days, and again, you go out into orchards, you go out into all these different applications, power is a constant. You know, you go into defense, same thing, right? All the, it's These guys are using thousands of batteries a day to power the devices that modern defense requires them to operate. So every sphere you go into, you go into a food delivery context and you've obviously tracking, you've got other stuff that needs to be powered. You go into a farming context, again, you know, like there's a lot of of the onboard technology can ultimately be used for agricultural applications as well. So I guess the thing is by being you know, a different drivetrain, it forces you to do things. And keep in mind, quietness, I mean, like we put a bunch of vehicles into New Zealand Defence Force this year, and I was standing beside the Colonel, and you could watch this bike go 10 metres in front of you through the scrub with one of their soldiers on it, and you couldn't hear the guy. Yeah. And so the thing is... I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. So It's quite different from a defence perspective. We've never... Or it's very challenging to find vehicles that would have that level of capability and be quiet. Well, the thing is with them is that they're not after something complicated, right? They're looking to help relieve the burden for dismounted troops. It's quite simple. And how do they do that in the most ubiquitous way? Well... You know, they can't do it with a vehicle. At the moment, the New Zealand Defence Force uses a really large five, you know, it's a 500 plus horsepower uh, motorbike. Um, The person has to be specially qualified and they have to reset those qualifications every couple of years. So that significantly diminishes the number of people in the Defence Force that can use these vehicles. So, you know, they're looking for something. The fact that you only need a car license in order to ride one of these is actually a compelling aspect of it. Because even when you get into farming, right, nobody needs to travel more than 50 kilometres an hour. And even if you look at this product market fit thing and range, well, as soon as you need to travel into city or very long distances, then capacity becomes an issue, speed becomes an issue. Since the very first vehicle we issued, we have had almost no range complaints because our job was, you know, do a day's work. I mean, an average postal delivery in Australia is 35 k's. Average distance travelled on farm in New Zealand is 25 k's. So, the you know the thing is that in many of these applications, you can do the job comfortably, and you've got some additional leftovers for it. And as long as the bike can power that, you've just won. And then they go home, plug it in, wake up the next morning, job's done. So the, the supercharger context in a lot of the areas we operate in is not required. You just need to yeah. plug it in. And even if you look at food delivery, you have peak shifts. People might use 50% of a power supply in a single shift. You, you plug the, the bike in or the battery in, and you know, you're up over 90% before you hit the next shift. So the thing there is that even on those very high, high kilometer applications where you're doing 20,000 plus kilometers a year, you have to have a vehicle that can operate at a certain level, for instance, to deliver post every day, to work in a farm every day. You know, these things are true. So cheap um, is actually not possible in some of these categories. So to some extent, in terms of their price bracket, that is an advantage because 
you know, in postal delivery in Australasia, for example, they will only previously look predominantly at Honda because Honda's the only one that made a vehicle or a two-wheel motorcycle capable of working that workload over those kilometres over that time period. Yeah, because I was going to say, what's a comparable price um, point for a petrol power? So the AG 200, for example. Um, I, I don't, I, I can't, I can't recall straight off the top of my head. We did a survey recently. I should know this, but um, I, we we are going to be more expensive in pure purchase price terms. But obviously, when you essentially look at the the use case, um, you know you're obviously not consuming fuel, um, the price of a kilowatt hour in New Zealand is 28 cents. Yep. You know, you have a 3.1 kilowatt hour pack, so, you know, there's a whole... Less than a dollar to fuel yeah, them. Yeah, there's yep. a whole dollar of power in there. So when you when you prorate that and you're very quickly stacking up, and obviously the higher the CC rating of the vehicle, the more fuel it uses, um, therefore, the better our statistics are. I mean, I've yet to see an application where we didn't claw back the difference and make a gain within two to three years of ownership. And most of our life cycles are, you know, that's about the goal. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, so, so I guess like you've got a different market, the product market fit is there, range anxiety is not an issue because yeah. the average distance traveled in a lot of these situations but, you know, I think with all the changes and improvements we've made as well, um, you know, each generation, you know, you, you get closer to getting to 100% of, of, you know, fulfillment. Yeah, of the, of the needs of the customer. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. It's quite a, a unique path to take in some ways um, to go agricultural first and then be thinking about maybe going onto road and thinking about like urban utility. Um, I hear you about the fact that nobody has really been building anything in this space for really kind of hardcore heavy duty utility. Can you, do you know of any, I mean, I've, I haven't managed to find any out, anybody else yet. So I'm kind of curious if you've got any other examples of companies that are building this sort of thing um, internationally for utility vehicles that are electric first. Um, I mean, I think there's been some people that are probably being having a crack at ATVs and UTVs, um, mm-hmm. and broadly speaking, general consensus would be not successfully. <laughs> the core issue is companies that are effectively electrifying a combustion engine design, and so you carry all the imperfections and things that you should dispense with and you're not taking all the gains that you could get if you went with a a more kind of pure line. So, I mean, again, we've taken our time on the 4x4 approach because it's such an important product. The design has to be kind of resolute and it's got to be, you know, you, you, you had to feel you could make a product with a substantial point of difference and one that was safe because this again, is a, this is like to do a quad bike equivalent. Yeah, UTV is essentially a, as a utility vehicle that has a seatbelt and a rollover protection, and an ATV is a quad, which is a four-wheel motorcycle okay. that does not have a seatbelt or rollover protection. So they are two different vehicle types. One's essentially a motorcycle; the other one is ostensibly a, a, just an off-road vehicle. You can never normally. Because the passenger safety standards are so high, 
uh, you could never certify a um, a UTV for on-road use, they will only ever be given, let's call it, agricultural exemptions to cross roads and maybe to do a short distance between two properties or something like that. But that's about as good as you'll get, um, you know, because obviously the if you look at the average protections afforded in a modern passenger car, they are obviously, you know, fairly high. I mean, airbags... Um, you know, there's a lot of safety features in a modern vehicle. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, the, so Horace's thesis around uh, my co-host's thesis around why micromobility is interesting is because car safety standards are now so high that you will not ever get a vehicle that's less than 500 kgs. And that actually opens up the sort of design universe of things that would be possible sub 500 kgs. Um, and and one and and that it makes it it makes a lot of sense that those would be electric. The one thing that it has been interesting that I've noticed is that there's a lot of three wheelers that have started to emerge. So things like the Arkamoto or the um, the Arc Trike or um, some of these newer vehicles because they're not considered cars. They're considered yeah. To I be mean, designed. an Arkamoto is basically a motorcycle. Yes, that's what three wheels. It's certified as. Um, yep. Look, I uh, you know it's an interesting area. I mean, I I think. I'll only speak for myself, but I think that the three-wheel category is a bit idiosyncratic. And so it, you don't get what a two-wheel affords you and you don't get what a four-wheel affords you, so it's somewhere in the middle. And then yeah. historically, there's actually a good reason why most of the big OEM Japanese companies don't make three-wheelers, you know, and that's principally safety. So I think the two wheels in front, one wheel in the rear is obviously better than the reverse. But, you know, when you look at the Can-Am Spider and all these, you know, they're, they're weird vehicles, if you're honest. I mean, they have a, such a narrow scope of use. I mean, for me, like, I just wouldn't, broadly speaking, be prepared to work on something that's that sort of niche. I mean, I personally like working on things that get applied every day of the week in applications that matter. So I think, you know, um, I I always like this idea in product development of being able to, by being pushed or making choices, you're then compelled to make these different design and engineering decisions which lead you down these pathways which, you know, provide greater differentiation. Um, and, you know, look, I'm not, not suggesting that these are low exposure manoeuvres, right, because, you know, I think Anyone who makes a change of a motorcycle today, the logical thing is just electrify that. Yes. Well, that was what I was going to ask you as well, which is like, why do you think it is that the existing, there aren't that many existing manufacturers that have made that transition easily to electric? And is it, do you think it's a case that the new players on the block are going to be, are going to completely disrupt the, the existing incumbents or do you think that they will eventually uh, evolve and, and be able to kind of catch up and build electric things that make sense for them? Um, I mean, it's a difficult question because I think people underestimate the challenges when you've, when you're making millions of vehicles a year and your supply chain is geared to a certain way and your sales are selling product of that type, and you've got to remember, like, this is statistically, according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, 2.7% of the vehicles sold in 2020 are electric. So if you're one of these big companies, they've got 2.7% of their sales could come from electric. 
Now, 2.7% of a number for UPCO would be a big number, right? But if you're Yamaha, if mm-hmm. you're Honda, if you're one of these other companies, it's not. It's a small number. Um, so that's the conundrum, you know, when you look at big versus small. It's the reason Nokia got killed. It's the reason Kodak got killed. It's because the ability for them to orchestrate change, you know, is very hard, I think. And I would acknowledge that because mm. I've worked in product development for a long time, so I know what goes in behind building a supply chain, and especially one that yeah. operates at scale. So um, I think, you know, obviously from the China side, um, you definitely, you know, if you were going to say where the disruption was going to come from, that's most likely where the companies are going to come from. You know, Segways just listed on the Shanghai Stock Exchange. They're the majority owner of Suron. Suron is probably, when you look at what they're doing in the US market and also globally, um, you know, they're obviously punching out some pretty interesting vehicles, uh, very capable. Um, and yes. yeah, and they're so, doing also agricultural as well, aren't they? Yeah, it's hard to say, right? Because, you know, it's a small vehicle. So I'm six foot one and 100 kilograms. And yep when I sit on it, it's too small for me. So, you know, I guess the question is, it's not a utility-oriented vehicle. It's, if you put that vehicle into um, an everyday work setting covered in effluent and mud, um, questions out as to what happens. Now, if it's cheap and you buy it and throw it away, then maybe, right? But the problem you've got now is that every single country in the world in developed economies are all bringing in product stewardship. New Zealand's bringing in product stewardship legislation. Um, so you can't just take an electronic product like a lithium-ion battery-powered vehicle and toss it after two years. Right. So, you know, product stewardship is key. Now, if you look at UPCO's progression, you know, and you look at where we're going, you know, there is obviously going to be more and more direction into subscription, which we already do. Um, and what that means is we don't actually relinquish ownership of the vehicle over its life. We take the vehicle back and we recycle it. So if you look at our new battery, you can take that thing completely apart after it's reached the end of its life. But also, most of these vehicles can have a life after the first primary high intensity life they can go to a lifestyle block they can go to somebody who just wants one at the beach or the batch and so these products could go out to 10 or 15 years before they may you know come back for you know final retirement and obviously because the power supply is removable now that also means that you know one of the most important product stewardship elements in the vehicle which is the battery Literally, you just unplug it and take it out of the bike. Yeah, and just replace it. I mean, again, like, it's there's virtually nothing in there that can't be replaced. I mean, you have a planetary gear system that is designed intentionally to wear and tear, so you just replace the planet gears and carry on. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's the difference. And the problem is, is with a combustion engine vehicle, everything gets flogged out. So, obviously, when you get to... A certain period of time and kilometers or usage then it is generally not able to, you know the cost of rehabilitating it is too extreme so but with a lot of these vehicles you have a significantly reduced number of moving parts 
which obviously reduces the wear and tear. Now, there is no vehicle, electric or otherwise, that will not have to be serviced in these environments we operate in. It's, it's, it's wishful thinking. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to ask in that regard, because that, that actually kind of brings me around to this question of distribution, which mm-hmm. is um, one of the... Th- so I had uh, Derek Dorostein on last week, who's the COO of uh, Damon, but before mm-hmm. this, he was the CTO of Alta. And yeah. he was talking about how they with Damon they're trying to do direct to consumer with Ulta they had to go through a dealership network because it was new they had to build it out it was expensive and all that sort of stuff Um, but they were saying with Damon that you know the fact is electric requires far less in terms of servicing and there's a lot more that they can do kind of OTA and things like that so they chose to go direct to consumer also they're based in North America as we think about any of these electric utility vehicles and I'm talking from e-bikes right through to something like what you guys build you know, servicing is obviously a really big componentry and it's very different to everything that's kind of come before it. And in that regard, it requires a whole new set of skill sets for mechanics, etc. So how do you think about this? one, how you distribute your vehicles and then two, how you keep them serviced when they're out in the field? Yeah, well, so we have a blended model, basically. I mean, for enterprise stuff, which has to be done directly and under subscription, um, we have service agents, mobile service agents. We have um, taken all of our training and put it into a digital learning management system. So we can train someone digitally and certify them to a level two technical, which is like a mechanic at a dealer level. Yeah. Um, But then we still have... You know, we have service agents, non-stocking dealers and dealers, and there will, I think, be a place for all of those as you go forward. Um, we do, you know, do direct to consumer. I mean, the bike basically can be delivered fully assembled um, in a 100% cardboard box package. Um, and there's a five-step LMS that the consumer needs to follow, and that's been approved by the New Zealand Transport Agency, and we can ship it with an MR2A, which is your compliance papers. So that, that basically will become the global standard for direct-to-consumer delivery. Direct-to-consumer enterprise are kind of, like, married. I mean, there's a big growth in um, the sort of servicing side in Europe. You've got Get Bike Service, as one great company uh, that we work with um, and you know people need are looking for convenience right so we just provide options because e-commerce is right up there at the end of the day you know we're selling bikes every month now you know direct to consumer um, yep. and they can be click and collect from a dealer or deliver direct to you it's your choice and what, what we've tried to do with our dealers is say hey look you know, I've said I'm going to use myself for an example. The last three mountain bikes I bought were online at 9 p.m. on a Sunday night. I haven't got time to go. Yes. To, I've got time to go in the shop. Like I just yeah. basically, I know what I want. I did the research. I picked the bike, chose the company that's a decent company I want to buy it off, and I just said click yeah. and collect. I'll pick it up on my way home. And yeah. the thing is, it, you know, I think people there's a big change in in consumer behavior and COVID's definitely accelerated. I think people are understanding that it is changing and they are kind of acknowledging that's changing. But I think a lot of dealerships, you know, have probably come, you know, there's, that business has operated a certain way for a very long time. And so, you know, digital training, e-commerce, I mean, and look, we're trying to take people with us, so you know, we pull all our dealers together, have a call with them, hey, so this is what we're going to do, 
you know, and keep in mind that, you know, when you look at this, and this is an interesting fact, right, two-thirds of all e-commerce stuff is in major metropolitan centres. So our dealers are most likely in, not in those areas. They're most likely actually in provincial areas where they're servicing rural networks. Yes. So we can do mobile service agents to enterprise stuff in metropolitan areas, DTC in those areas supported by those service agents as well. Um, so I think a blended model works for us. Subscription, um, you know, keep in mind that if, if someone signs up to service a subscription over three years, I mean, you actually... And when you say subscription, this is them getting a vehicle for $150 a month or $200 a month sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, so we, yep. you know, the, the numbers are obviously relative to each particular deal. So, um, you know, there's a week, there's a cap, you know, we have all of our own service records. So, I mean, say for instance, for food delivery, we had two years of operating history before we did one. Postal, oh, two, two to three years of operating history. So we look at all the service records, talk to all the managers, what broke, what worked, what didn't, and then basically that's what our service schedules are built off. And then we have a fleet portal for those vehicles which are connected, and the service person basically fills out the service records digitally against the VIN code of the vehicle, all the serial numbers attached to everything in the vehicle, controllers, motors, battery, even down to the tires, they're in there. And so, um, you've also got kind of security, safety and tracking features in there too. So, you know, what we've sort of really built out as a complete technology platform over time, it principally was the goal from the outset. It's probably just taken us four years to actually get it right through. Because it's one yeah. step at a time. I, I just, what, how does that affect your, your margins as a manufacturer? I mean, I, I just know because I, Very the sense that I get... Yeah, 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 I imagine, right? <laughs> it's like if I could cut out a dealer. And, 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 and if, no, but, and, I at mean, the end I think, of the day, I think the thing that's why Tesla that, did it, right? You know? Well, Tesla's done, I mean, they've got a different model and they've got a different level of access to capital, right? So, I mean, if, I, if we had access to billions of dollars of capital, maybe you'd set up all your own stores too. Um, yes. But I think the thing is that subscription, you know, I mean, there's a mix of, at the end of the day, large enterprises probably want to do a deal directly. Um, they get special pricing, um, and those are done at a subscription level. And so that's that's going to increasingly be a part of the mix going forward. It recognises the product stewardship and sustainability issues attached to this, the valuable materials you put into your electronics and batteries. But it also recognises that 30 to 40% of the cost of one of these vehicles is the actual pack itself. Now, mm -hmm. you know, when people come to us and say, hey, this, see this vehicle here, see what the price is, I mean, I go, well, sure, but, you know, at the end of the day, you're, you're carrying, processing, assembling and using a dangerous good. If you do not take that seriously, um, it will result in pretty serious problems downstream. You have to be careful. Oh, you mean if people if people try to use well, like cheap non upcoat yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if someone says yeah, they can, yeah. you know, sell a vehicle at this kilowatt hour kind of capacity, but at this price, I mean, because I know what the cost of a kilowatt hour pack is from the five dominant companies globally, then you kind of know that that's not possible. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, I was going to ask you about that as well because your your price points. 
you know, it's uh, what's your what's the price of the Upco? Uh, probably varies in the, in the US. which country you are in the US. It'll probably range between in the fives for the work bike with a two point one kilowatt hour pack through to an adventure with a three point one. You know, it's probably pushing up to nine nine thousand. Yeah, because those those price yeah. points are a lot higher than well. Again, it's hard to put, kind of find something that would be necessarily comparable to it, but it certainly sits a little bit higher than, for example, a moped, uh, like an electric moped that you might be able to buy in, in the yeah, US. Yeah, but you've, you've Again, got to remember not that comparable, we're not, right? Yeah, but you've got to remember that we're not competing against the moped in most of the categories we operate in. Yeah, yeah, no, no, exactly. So I guess the, the part, I guess the part that I'm trying to get at is um, there is people are paying for quality in this regard and because it's heavier duty and, and, and things like that. Yeah, qual- like quality costs. And it's, and, and it's one of those things that you just see it happening, which is there's a lot of ch- stuff that's coming out of China that's relatively low quality, um, but lo- looks similar, but then it's, you know, it's crap. And you see that in the e-bike space as well. There's a lot of stuff that's getting shipped out that people are kind of not quite realizing that you, could, you, you obviously get what you pay for in that kind of- in, Yeah, in, in and look, I mean, space. as a company, you know, our concern is not the decisions that another company makes to make products which are either short life cycle or inferior. I certainly wouldn't be comfortable or willing to work with a company manufacturing the kind of materials that we manufacture with. It's like a privilege to make products out of these materials at the end of the day. They are valuable, rare materials. So, you know, I'm not going to say that the first product we ever made was perfect or completely durable, but we're aspiring to make a product that gets to that promise and, um, and and yeah, look, at the end of the day, we're not going to sell to everybody, we're not going to appeal to everybody, but that's not our goal. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think making a million units a year of something that's, you know, that, that's got a cheap price point. I think, you know, you're trying to add value into the product and the product platform to such an extent that, you know, like it's a, the analogy I would use is that when you bought a cell phone 20 years ago and it's a Nokia, right? It's like probably a hundred bucks. If someone yep. had asked you at that point, would you pay one to two thousand dollars for a cell phone? You would literally laughed yourself off a chair sideways. Um, but here we are, and yes, we do. And the reason yes. that people will do that is because of the additional functionality that the device now provides. It's not just a phone. You've got email, you've got cameras, you've got photos, you've got your applications, communication, channels, uh, entertainment. So when you look at a vehicle, this is the whole thing, right? You've got to look at it as a whole platform, portable power. You've got... Um, you know, kind of utility, you've got sensors, you've got, you know, safety, you've got all these things that you can give people um, because of what it is. And that's where this value proposition is. So yeah, I was actually, I was going to ask you, so I've got, I've got two, two questions before we finish up. One is mm-hmm. uh, just talking about capital and capital raising in the second, and mm-hmm. the second actually, which I'd love to start with is, is, you know, as you say, the functionality that's possible within these vehicles is well you you can increase the utility in some ways because it's like a, it's, it's a piece of software in some ways i mean it's a hardware but it's also got software running on it and you've got some sort of uh computation are you and you and you even kind of alluded to it when you talked about how you can map the different power profiles of the bike according to what you kind of want to do on that particular day or anything um how are you thinking about the bike as a as a software platform going forward 
Um, yeah, well, so it's it's obviously built by your technology of a physical kind. So the onboard technology in the vehicle needs to be of the type and variety that provides you the processing power to do stuff, not just for pure speed and throttle control, but you know, it, it needs to give you enough headroom to be able to calculate and work um, a variety of things out. So, um, you know, that's key. And then you've obviously got to have a um, cloud platform and cloud infrastructure which is set up to be able to work with you know all the vehicles that you've got so it is that the two are very closely bound because your ability to interact and to kind of provide instructions in a dynamic way for a vehicle is ultimately going to probably be software driven so I think as soon as you have enough onboard technology, we've probably just got to a point now where we can probably start to do, we've got a, a, a really wide variety of things that we can build into the vehicle over time. So, yep. you know, in terms of additional functionality, traction control, incline, you know, a whole bunch of stuff like that, which can be released over a period of time now because the vehicle's now up to it. And you have to have a vehicle that's mechanically capable of withstanding those things so you know there's certainly a lot of testing in the background to understand what drives performance and whether or not you can sustain it so yeah definitely yeah. a big part yeah no absolutely oh cool well i look forward to chatting with you more about that um and then finally the, the capital uh, capital access because you know talking to uh derek about the story with alter and uh and then what's happened with boosted and obviously like you know there is a it is a challenging business to be in to be manufacturing kind of uh electric heavier motor micro mobility and, and motorbikes etc cetera, etc cetera. everybody has challenged been challenged to raise money in the in the um in this sort of space yep. especially when you're kind of dealing a lot with hardware have you have you seen any change in the last like three to six months um especially because i just uh, you know what we're seeing a lot with the fact that tesla has obviously gone to the moon and a bunch of capital looking specifically for electric or electric micromobility um and wanting to put capital into that and it's funny because i think the space is full of hype right like or it has at least traditionally been quite full of hype and micromobility and you can see oh, the yeah, billion no. dollar valuations for a lot of stuff and it's the like no no we're just trying to <laughs> we're just trying to build far bikes yeah. we're trying to build far bikes that are useful and have utility and a good quality bikes and people want to buy over a long period of time like that's an interesting way to build a business. Well, it seems straightforward, but you know. Yeah, we yeah. get seen stuff all the time. People say, have you seen this and have you seen that? And you know, you'd probably say, the funniest thing I remember seeing is we're ranked 44th on the top 100, you know, electric motorcycles of this particular point in time. <laughs> and I yep. think we were the only vehicle in production. And so I said, well, we're actually number one because yes. we're the only fucking bike and bloody production so yep. you know like obviously it's changing a little bit all the time and there's more and more interest in the area and i think you're probably getting you're going back to your original question i think it is probably fair to say that there is there appears to be an increasing interest acceptance and enthusiasm for investing into um, I think electric vehicles in, in a broader context because it's much more accepted compared to 
I mean, honestly, when, when we were first presented the bikes in 215 or 214 or whatever it was, compared to today, I mean, the level of acceptance, the changes in that time period are significant. But again, go back to Bloomberg's numbers, 2.7% mm. of all vehicle sales as at 2020. So despite the hype, the reality is quite, it's still, you know, it's still a different um, thing. And I think, you know, for us, in, in some small way, um, you know, we've helped people see that you can actually use an electric vehicle, you know, to work on a farm, to deliver food, to do these things, um, and that they can do the job. And so, mm. you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, we're not changing the entire transport sector, but, you know, it sort of starts at the ground level. And I think the more kilometres that we have, the more learning we have, then, you know, the more clear um, it is about, um, you know, you just, you're learning so much all the time and that gets codified into the product that that is part of what builds success, I think, because mm. you can't make those decisions unless you've, you put that vehicle out and you've learned that stuff. And again, yeah. you know, learning is a triage exercise where you learn about the stuff that hurts you the most, then you go on to the next thing, then you go on to the next thing, <laughs> yeah. then you go on to the next yeah. thing. So, yeah. you know, again, the, the sequence of learning, um, but you've also still got to be pretty courageous because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you, you can't assume what has worked for you today, even in a young company like Upco, you, you can't assume what worked for you yesterday is going to work for you tomorrow. So you've got to be, the decisions and risks you take are still equal to the decisions and risks we took. We might just have more information attached yep. to those, but you can't afford to be slow or slack about it. And I think you'd have to give credit to a company like Tesla for being aspirational and brave and not, you know, and actually taking on the challenge and not, you know, and, and shooting for the high side, not shooting for the middle, because it would be super easy to get to where they've got to and then sort of just hit the sign to kind of manage your risk a bit, which is, mm -hmm. what, is what happens when a company gets to that sort of size. Um, I, I, yeah, you know. and I think that's what certainly what we're seeing in the rest of the industry. Hey, look, anyway, I, uh, I'm just really conscious of, of time, so um, I, I just want to say thank you so much for this. Uh, I think it's been such an interesting uh, insight into the world of uh, heavy-duty micromobility, uh, which isn't really a sector that we've really covered off, so I just want to say <laughs> thank you very much, Tim. No um, and, and for folks who want to track, track you down, Ubco Bikes, uh, was it Ubco Bike on, on Twitter? And, uh, uh, yeah, UbcoBikes.com on the website and then Ubco Bikes through most of the kind of social channels like Instagram, etc. So Excellent. Facebook and so on. So yeah, check us out. Great. Excellent. Thanks very much. Nice one.